Warren Buffett, BlackRock, and other institutional players dominate investments in commercial aviation. Why? Because it's one of the most profitable and predictable alternative assets that exists. And it's not tied to other markets such as real estate and the stock market. Is it safe? Well, imagine triple net leases to the likes of American Airlines and British Airways. Income is contractual and guaranteed by some of the biggest named airlines in the world. That's why this kind of investment was never available to the ordinary accredited investor. That is until now. Visit accesswealthaviation.com and check it out for yourself. Invest in an institutional team with over 200 plus years of combined investment experience in the aviation sector. Conservative investing with double digit returns and tax advantages. That's accesswealthaviation.com. Accesswealthaviation.com. You are listening to the Wealth Formula Podcast with Buck Joffrey. Get ready to change your life. Welcome, everybody. This is Buck Joffrey with the Wealth Formula Podcast. I want to start out today's episode by letting you know that the Wealth Formula meetup actually got canceled. Uh, it is because of this social distancing issue. Uh, basically, you know, just going along with the guidelines of the CDC and the World Health Organization right now. I think it's a good idea uh, that we did this, and I'll talk about in the, that in a minute. But in the meantime, let me remind you that there's a website that you should visit once in a while called wealthformula.com, where you can get all sorts of resources and downloads. And that's also where you can join the Investor Club, which is our group of accredited investors. Uh, that's where we get together and make the magic happen. Uh, go to wealthformula.com and you can learn all about it. Now, as for today's show, well, let me just start out by saying that we obviously live in a world where things change fast, right? A couple of weeks ago, it seemed like this whole novel coronavirus thing, this COVID-19, that was just some exotic disease in China, right? And before you know it, it becomes a big problem in other parts of the world. In Italy, there's an actual national lockdown. In Israel, they're not, they were basically quarantining anybody who coming into the country for 14 days. And then last week, we saw in our own country signs that this is something serious when we saw the NBA season get suspended. No, I'm actually being serious about that because I think that that probably for the layperson sort of kind of said, hey, maybe this is something to pay attention to. So what's going to happen by the time I release this podcast and in the next two weeks, who knows? This is crazy how fast this stuff is going. And I'm sure... Uh, you're getting your information from a lot of different places, maybe some of it from the news, some of it from maybe uh, some biased news, some non-biased news, some biased in the other direction, social media, et cetera, et cetera. But let me just stop for a moment and provide you with my own perspective. Of course, my perspective is as a, as a physician, I did go to medical school, was a pretty good medical student. I used to be a surgeon, uh, operating a board-certified surgeon. I don't do that stuff anymore, but I still uh, know a thing or two about that kind of stuff. I'm also, obviously, a personal, fan, personal 
a finance guy, a real estate guy, and a guy who considers him a per, considers himself pretty smart when it comes to this uh, financial stuff as well. So let's start with the medical stuff. So coronavirus is not, I repeat, not the Spanish flu of 1918. That uh, was an incredible pandemic that killed off two to three percent of the planet's human population. It decreased the U.S. life expectancy by 10 years. Spanish flu was an unbelievable destructive force, and particularly for young and healthy people. And that's what made it even scarier in some regards. You see, the way that virus killed people was actually triggering an immune response in the people that it affected. So young and healthy people with stronger immune systems had the most powerful immune responses and therefore were disproportionately dying from the infection. Now, COVID-19, a.k.a. novel coronavirus, is different. It's very different. And in many respects, it's a smarter virus, even though it's less virulent. It is a smarter virus. You see, a virus that kills all of its hosts or a high percentage of its hosts doesn't last for long, right? And so that doesn't make for a very good, you know, evolutionary biology smart virus. What makes this coronavirus so challenging for us is that for most people, meaning 80% or more, the symptoms are really quite mild or potentially even non-existent, right? So it is true that some people, when they get this, they just think they've got a cold or they don't even know at all. Maybe they sneeze once and they're like, ah, I sneezed. And the next thing you know, uh, that was it. And the problem is that that's not the case for, you know, the elderly and some people with health problems, because if they get it, uh, it can be downright uh, deadly and at a very high rate. And But the lack of symptomatic uh, presentation or mild symptomatic presentation for the majority of those who get it allows for this thing to spread like wildfire. You see, most people who get it don't know they have it. The kids in schools and universities come home with colds or with no symptoms at all. They go visit grandma, and then she ends up dying two weeks later. I mean, that's really what this thing is. And frankly, without a vaccination, um, that makes the virus extremely difficult to fight, right? If you don't know who's got it, you know, like the flu, I mean, you get the flu, it hits you like a Mack truck. You don't sit there and, you know, think you don't have anything and then pass it on to somebody uh, with diabetes, right? You just don't do that. Or somebody who's immunocompromised, you just, you know, you get hit. Um, so anyway, without vaccination uh, and and really without, uh, you know, with the low symptomatic uh, nature of this for most people, the only real option we have in battling this thing is social distancing, which uh, ironically seems like an extreme extreme way to uh, to react to this thing. But it kind of isn't because even though for most of us, it's not going to hurt us. It's really the only way we can stop it from spreading because shoot, we don't even, we don't even test, right? I mean, when people can't even get tested right now, I know, 
Uh, President Trump says we can, but the answer is we cannot. You Just try to go get tested if you're a little sick right now. You're not going to get a, a, a coronavirus test, okay? Anyway, so that's why the NBA season was suspended. That's why universities and major companies are asking people to, you know, to work or, or, or to study from home. So here's the thing. Social media is making this thing even more tricky. But what I will say is this. For people who think we're going too far with the social distancing and are calling this whole thing a hoax, I disagree with you. But I also disagree with people who are creating hysteria by calling this the Spanish flu. Because if you are under 60, you're relatively healthy, your chances of dying from the coronaviruses are very low. It's probably on par with, you know, influenza. Uh, And so, you know, I mean, we don't run around the country most of the time worrying about that. But nevertheless, it is a socially responsible thing for us to try and not get infected and then pass the virus to someone else who might then end up killing their neighbor, right? That's just the right thing to do. So anyway, that's the public health part of this virus. And the problem is that's really just one part of it because there is obviously an economic impact of this virus as well, which is pretty frightening in and of itself. I mean, just think about the money lost in travel and entertainment. Listen, I have to admit uh, one thing, and I'll always admit when I'm wrong. I didn't really see the economic implications of this virus uh, coming the way it has. I really didn't see that. Um, and I have to tell you, it was, you know, I think I was blind to it like a lot of people were. But right now, I see where this is headed, and I it's going to be a little ugly. It is. Because what drives the economy is people spending money, right? That's it. Fundamentally, that's what it is. Get hand, you know, people, get people, uh, you know, get their hands on some money and let them spend it. That's what drives the economy. And if people are staying at home, guess what? They aren't spending. The emergency rate cuts are not going to help with that. Trump's plan for payroll tax cut holidays won't do much other than to buy a day or two of stock market irrational exuberance, and that'll die off. Just like that emergency Fed rate cut died out pretty quickly as well. I mean, what what purpose? That had very little purpose at all. In fact, it's like, man, you just gave away a bunch of your your dry powder uh, right off the bat to try to help this thing. It didn't help at all. So in my humble opinion, uh, we are probably already in a recession. We don't know it yet. The question is how deep this recession will be and how much damage it's going to do before things get better. Now, here's the good news, right? Uh, the coronavirus, again, this is not Spanish flu. It's not going to kill off 2 to 3% of the world population. Here's the other thing. An effective antiviral will likely be identified and available within the next several months. And when I say identified, it's probably because it's an antiviral that's currently uh, used for something else. There's some tests right now suggesting that uh, an antiviral that was developed for Ebola may have some benefit for this. So I think there probably will be something in the next several months that will help with that. And in a year or so from now, we're very likely to be very close to a vaccine, if not have one. And the reason for that is we're going to do everything in our power to streamline this thing. Um, and so I think 
the bottom line is that the underlying problem that triggers this recession, which is coronavirus, is probably self-limited. So where does that leave us? Well, if you can, start looking at this situation as an investor who is waiting for a buying opportunity because, listen, now and the next several months are not the time to let fear overcome you. You've got to be patient, right? There's a good chance there's going to be some opportunities to buy assets at a discount. Just remember Warren Buffett's quote, to be fearful when others are greedy and greedy when others are fearful. That is really, really good advice because it may be time to get greedy pretty soon. Now, I don't know about you, but I'm still, every day I'm just trying to get as many opinions and listen to as many economists as I can and what's happening with the global economy. And for that reason, uh, a couple weeks ago, I did an interview with Richard Duncan. And that was just, again, like two weeks ago. And what strikes me about that interview is how quickly everything has moved, even since then. Anyway, there is still a ton of information in there that I think is really valuable. Uh, it doesn't mean that you know Richard's voice is the only voice in the room, but I do think it's a good one. So after these messages, we will come back and listen to Richard Duncan. What do the Rothschilds, the Romneys, and the billionaire hedge fund managers know that you don't about growing and protecting wealth? As you might imagine, the wealthy have a few tricks up their sleeves. One strategy allows you to grow wealth tax-free at a compounding rate with no volatility. It protects your money from creditors and lawsuits, and it lets you invest the same money in two different places at the same time. How about that for amplifying wealth? To learn more, go to WealthFormulaBanking.com. Again, that's WealthFormulaBanking.com. Self-storage is a necessary evil. It's where you keep your stuff and forget about it. No wonder this stuff is so profitable and recession resistant. The Wealth Formula community, well, we've benefited from that. We've made lots of money in this space with Reliant Real Estate, one of the largest self-storage companies in the country. With an average investor internal rate of return of almost 34%, with hold times just over three and a half years, these guys know what the meaning of velocity of money is. If you're an accredited investor, make sure to check out what they're up to right now at ReliantFund4.com. Again, that's ReliantFund4.com. Welcome back to the show, everyone. Today, my guest on Wealth Formula Podcast is Richard Duncan. Uh, Richard is an economist. He's the author of three books, uh, including The Dollar Crisis, Corruption of Capitalism, and The New Depression, Breakdown of uh, Paper Money economy. He has appeared frequently on CNBC, CNN, BBC, and Bloomberg Television, and is widely published in major economic journals. Richard also has a video newsletter called MacroWatch, which we'll talk about in a little bit as well, which analyzes the forces and um, events that currently impact the global economy. Richard, uh, welcome back uh, to Wealth Formula Podcast. Buck, thank you for having me back on. So, um, when we were talking uh, before we had started, there's just, um, you know, uh, December of, of last year is, uh, you know, it's been over a year since we spoke. So a lot has happened since then. Um, lots of uncertainty, not only in the, I guess, in the equity markets, but just in the economy in general. Uh, last week, we saw the biggest sell-off on the Dow since 2008. And then today, 
Um, you know, we had the biggest single-day gain in the market, and of course, this has all been attributed to the novel coronavirus um, stock market aside, how has coronavirus really impacted the economy to date? So, Buck, you know, I live in Asia. I live in Thailand. And if I can begin on maybe what will be a rare optimistic note, it's amazing that there have not been more cases in Thailand so far where I live than there have. So far, I think there are only 42, 43 reported cases. Yeah. And the reason this is so extraordinary is because <clears throat> last year, Thailand had 11 million Chinese tourists. So in January alone, there probably would have been more than 1 million Chinese tourists here. And the fact that Thailand only has 43 cases, and most of those were Chinese tourists, it, it doesn't seem to be spreading very quickly here. And the point I'm trying to get to is I think the reason it's not spreading is because Thailand is warm and sunny. Therefore, I think there's reason to be optimistic, or at least grounds for optimism, that this virus will go away when the summer comes, just like SARS did. Yeah, yeah, that's so, interesting thought so, uh, there. And also, I mean, my guess is that in Thailand, they may not be, you know, most of the cases in in coronavirus, novel coronavirus are still people. I mean, uh, the ones that are reported, of course, are serious. But, um, you know, the majority of these cases are probably still going under the radar. You know, they're they're just people with colds. Yes, uh, but things have been, you know, uh, more concerning in this part of the world for longer than they have been in the, in the U.S. I think the Americans are really just beginning to realize what this could mean in the last week or two. But it's been you know, considerably more serious yeah. for those of us in Asia already. And you can see the impact on the economy. You know, Thailand relies very heavily on tourism. Now half the tourists are gone. The restaurants are empty. The hotels are empty. The taxi drivers are having to give up their cars because they can't afford to pay the rent on them anymore. And the economy is being very severely hit. So you can uh, extrapolate and assume that something quite similar is going to happen in the United States as well and around the world, mm -hmm. so long as this virus continues to spread. So, so uh, I think obviously you alluded it, alluded to it. Um, you know, with with regards to, you know, you've got less tourism. Um, what about, you know, the impact on? corporate earnings, asset prices, um, you know, in, in the global economy in general, like what are, what, and obviously in the U S we're just starting to see some of that, but what are the, you know, what are the things to really look out for here? I mean, in, in, in terms of, you know, how this impacts global, uh, the global economy and, and, and the, the corporate earnings, et cetera, that really ultimately, you know, define what, what's going on with the economy rather than necessarily just fluctuations in the stock market. Okay, well, I think the best way to look at this is for, through a, a very a large um, framework. You know, I believe that credit growth drives economic growth, first, first of all. And what we've seen is that any time in the United States credit grows by less than 2%, the economy goes into recession. 
Now, so what I mean by that is total credit equals total debt. So total credit means all the, all the debt in the country, government debt, household sector debt, corporate debt, financial sector debt, all the debt. And so if it, going back to 1952, total credit, there have been nine times when total credit adjusted for inflation grew by less than 2%. And every time the U.S. went into recession up until 2009. Now, since 2009, credit growth, is, the private sector has been too heavily indebted to take on a lot, of, a lot of debt. So it's been government debt that has been growing very rapidly and driving economic growth to the extent that it has. But even with government debt really practically tripling since 2008, that still hasn't been enough to make credit grow by substantially more than 2%. So... The Fed has had to jump in and drive the economy by pushing up asset prices. They've done this initially with three, the first three rounds of quantitative easing. And then more recently, they started cutting interest rates again and launched a fourth round of quantitative easing. So to, to sum this up, credit growth drives economic growth in the United States. And when credit growth is too weak, as it has been recently, it's had to be supplemented by asset price inflation. So the Fed's been driving the economy by making the stock market go up. Now, suddenly we find ourselves in a situation where it's very possible that credit could begin contracting and at the same time, asset prices could crash. So we could absolutely have a, you know, a very serious double blow of credit contraction and asset price contraction, which would throw the U.S. into a very severe recession or, or worse. So starting with the credit side, well, first of all, the corporate sector is already very heavily indebted. Uh, relative to GDP, the corporate sector's debt relative to GDP is higher now than it's ever been. It's at a record high. And in the last three times it was anywhere near this high, it, it started to contract, and the U.S. went into recession each of those times. So now we're in a situation where a lot of corporations are going to have problems. Um, we already have a, a large amount of poor quality corporate debt to begin with. And so now oil prices have been crashing. That's going to hurt a lot of the people related to the oil industry. The airlines are in trouble. The hotels are in trouble. Uh, the restaurants are going to be in trouble. And the virus is not even, you know, this, is, this is before we have this sudden outbreak in the United States. So it's very likely that the corporate cash flow is going to deteriorate very rapidly. And we're going to see a spike in corporate sector defaults. And as that occurs, the, then the banks are going to have more non-performing loans and they're going to be much more reluctant to lend to banks, uh, to lend to the corporations. And of course, it's going to be harder for the corporations to sell bonds on the capital markets as well. So the corporate sector debts like to contract, and that's going to be a blow to the economy in itself. Now, if this spreads to the households, which it seems likely to do as well, it seems very likely that uh, just as it has occurred in Thailand, people aren't going to go out and shop as much as they used to do. Rather than traveling, they're going to stay home, and they're going to not go to the restaurants, they're not going to fly around, and so you would expect people in those industries are going to lose their jobs. And as the unemployment rate begins to move higher, then it's going to be more difficult for the 
normal Americans to make their car payments and their credit card payments and perhaps even their mortgages. So in that case, again, the banks will be hit by higher non-performing loans and then credit to the households will contract. Now, if credit grows by less than 2%, the U.S. goes into recession. It's barely at 2% now. If credit actually turns negative, then the, you know, we're talking about a very severe recession. So that's on the, that's on the credit side. Now, as I said earlier, credit growth has already been very weak, just barely above the 2% re- recession threshold. So that has forced the Fed to be very aggressive in pushing up asset, pricing, asset prices. And as you know, um, when we spoke last time, the Fed was still increasing interest rates uh, 15 months ago and expected interest rates to move higher in 2019. But then in just about the time we were speaking last time in December 2018, the stock market fell about 20%. And that made the, the Fed completely reconsider everything. It then that following month announced that it was going to stop hiking rates and that quantitative tightening was going to end much sooner than expected. So the market revived and the stock market went back up, but then there was another dip in, in May. And soon after that, the Fed started cutting interest rates in July, September, and November. They cut rates three times. And then in October, they relaunched quantitative easing. $60 billion a month, the Fed is printing money and buying assets to try to push the stock market higher. And this has been very successful. Stock market was at all-time record highs uh, about two weeks ago, and but very pricey, very expensive on PE terms. And overall, asset prices are very stretched in the country relative to income. So the asset prices are very vulnerable to any sort of uh, shock. And this virus is an extreme shock. So, so there's a real danger. As we saw last week, the markets fell nearly 12% in a week. Uh, as last night, as you mentioned, they, they rebound. But policymakers are going to have to try very, very hard to prevent the stock market from crashing. So, so one of the stock- things I heard, Richard, uh, and maybe you could address this, is that uh, you know, one of the reasons that there was um, some optimism in the market was that uh, there was uh, some signaling from the Fed that they may intervene in in some way. And I guess there's two parts of this question. One is one is um, okay. So I guess what are the extreme ways in which they could in, intervene? Um, I can add, that would be one question for me. The second question is. What are you, you're intervening in the stock market, but the underlying economy, um, it doesn't seem like you're, you're going to be able to do much from what tools are left in the, in the Fed's uh, arsenal. Uh, can, you, can you address those two issues? Yes, you're right. It's, very, it's going to be very challenging for them, but I would not underestimate how drastic their policy response will be if push comes to shove. So already the market is anticipating big rate cuts on the federal, the federal, federal funds rate. The market's priced in 100% chance of a 50 basis point cut at the next FOMC meeting this month, if not before. 
but that's not going to have much of an impact because you can cut interest rates as far as you want and people still are not going to get on airplanes or right. you know, they're, they're, it's not going to. Yeah, that, that's what I'm getting at is we've not really been challenged with a true, you know, uh, you might have some asset prices dipping, but this is potentially a situation where there's real decreases in, in, in GDP. And um, so we've been unchallenged. Yes. Yeah, so so next step, they're already doing $60 billion of quantitative easing already. They, they, they say it's not QE, but it is. They're, they're creating money and buying government securities. That's QE. They're already doing $60 billion a month. Well, they could increase that substantially, but that would drive interest rates even lower. The 10-year bond yield last night came very close to 1%. So it would drive them even lower. You could keep driving them lower, but again, that itself is not going to help very much either. Interest rates are already extremely low. This is, this is a, both a supply shock and a demand shock for the economy. On the supply side, U.S. companies can't, in some cases, do business because they're not getting the goods from China where they're made, or they're not getting the parts they need from China. So their sales are going to be hit. That's the supply side. We're beginning to see that already in some of the corporate earnings announcements. But the demand side shock is coming, and that's where people just simply stop shopping or shop far less than they did before. So QE by itself is not going to help that either. So what are they going to do? Well, I would not rule out the possibility that if the, Fed, if the stock market starts falling you know, in the range of 25% or more, we may see some, some form of direct intervention in the stock market where either the fed starts buying stocks directly or else the fed provides funding to the government and the government uses the funding to buy stocks directly and pushes up the stock market. And if you have that sort of scenario where policymakers, the government at one level or the other is actually in the market publicly buying stocks with unlimited amounts of money, because after all, the Fed, there's no limit as to the amount of money the Fed can create. It can create as much money as it wants. And so if you have policymakers jump into the stock market and begin buying it and allowing the market to know that they're buying it, then every fund manager in the world is going to have to jump back into the stock market as well. And stock prices will stop falling and will go back up. Now, technically, the Fed is not allowed to buy stocks to well, but you know, it's uh, laws can be changed. The, the history of the Fed is one long history of the law being revised to allow the Fed cr to create more and more money. I mean, initially, you know, back in the olden days, remember the Fed was not allowed to create money if it didn't have gold to back the money it created. But all, all through the Fed's history, that law was relaxed until in 1968, it was removed altogether. After 1968, the Fed was no longer required to hold any gold. And of course, afterwards, the amount of money they've created is it's grown beyond exponentially. So laws are made to be changed, and they've been changed every time there is any sort of pressing urgency to allow the Fed to do more than it was able to do before. So, you know, if we, I can't emphasize enough how dependent the U.S. economy is on the stock market and on asset prices. And if asset prices start plunging 25, 35%, then the U.S. is going to go into an extremely severe recession slash depression. 
And the policymakers are simply not going to stand back without fighting back. And I would advise investors to be prepared for some sort of really much more aggressive policy response than the markets are currently anticipating, something now unanticipated, like direct asset purchases of stocks to push the stock market back up. So if you can keep the stock market from falling, if you can keep the stock market up, that at least will go a long way to mitigating the harm that's going to come in any case. But if you have if you have the virus hitting the economy on all the fundamental levels and the stock market crashing, then you know that's going to be twice as bad. And I, so and I suspect there's also this element there where, like you were talking about in 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 Thailand, because of the weather, um, maybe things aren't spreading. The idea may be here. Okay, what do we do to get through the next two or three months? You know. Well, that's right. I mean, I think. Uh, that I think everyone should hold out hope in that respect. Of course, there's the risk that it will come back again when the weather turns cold again. But, you know, by then perhaps we will have some very effective treatments for this and eventually a vaccine perhaps, and it may not come back. I was living in Hong Kong during SARS and that was absolutely terrifying. Uh, go into an elevator and it's practically a capital offense. If you're in an elevator and sneeze, I mean, people will stone you. You know, you don't touch the elevator buttons. It was terrifying. But as the weather warmed up, SARS went away and the WTO declared it effectively dead in, in early July. So hopefully that will be the case again this time. We kind of hit uh, the proverbial straw that um, breaks the camel's neck with with uh, Corona, but there's a lot of other things that you've been concerned about, and uh, and specifically, I mean, one thing that comes to mind. I know you've been talking a little bit about how China, uh, you know, where China was positioned last time where we uh, we talked, and 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 now uh, what's happened with um, you know with the, with the size of the economy and where they are with some technologies. Do you want to uh, talk about some of those things and how you think that's going to affect us in the U.S.? Sure. It's hard to think about the world as it was two weeks ago before the virus started spreading around the world very rapidly. Uh, But uh, the things I worked on then uh, are still going to matter a year from now and even six months from now. But Before jumping to that, on the subject of China, you may have seen that on Friday they released their PMI numbers for industrial purchasing manager index numbers. And it showed that the PMI in China had plunged to the worst on record, even worse than 2008 in January. It fell to something like 38 uh, on the index level, down from 50. That was uh, in one month. And the non-manufacturing PMI was even worse. It fell to the mid-20s from a level of 54 the the month before. So this is showing us that China's economy is already in recession, is contracting. 
And of course, that is going to impact the entire world because China is the second biggest economy in the world. They purchase commodities from everyone. Therefore, commodity prices have been falling sharply. And so you can just see how the, the global impact of this is, uh, is going to slam the world. All right, now, so if we think about what was going on before the virus started disrupting the markets, one thing that I was working on is I've been making a number of videos, macro watch videos, that I called America's National Emergency. And the emergency is this. China last year invested more in research and development than the United States did by a substantial amount. Uh, in, and they have been increasing their investment in R&D at a much more rapid rate than the United States has now for decades. If you extrapolate forward using current rates of investment growth in research and development for China and the United States, by the year 2030, China will be investing 40% more every year than the United States in research and development. So. China has already rolled out 5G. It rolled out 5G in, I think, 30 or 50 Chinese cities in November. And they dominate the 5G market through Huawei globally. The United States is not even in the race. So this is going to give China a very big re lead and advantage in areas like drones, for instance and driverless cars and also in all kinds of data gathering so if if china wins the race the way that it's won the 5g race then that would be the 21st century equivalent of china having a nuclear monopoly whoever whichever country reaches the level where artificial intelligence is on par with and then rapidly exceeds human intelligence, they're going to have an enormous, enormous is an understatement, advantage over the rest of the world in, in terms of the, their power, technologically, economically, and militarily. So I view this news that China overtook the United States in research and development spending last year as a national emergency. Now, the China has some challenges too, right? I mean, from the demographic side. Yes, uh, China and China's economy uh, was a, is a very big bubble. There's no doubt about it. But if they can continue, they can keep this bubble going uh, for another five to ten years, then in comparison, the United States is going to be a very second-rate vulnerable power. And they've managed to keep this bubble going far longer than I ever imagined that they would be able to do. Now they're developing this Belt Road project where they're providing credit and industrial materials all around the world to develop infrastructure to connect the rest of the world to China. This is a very clever move on their part, of course, because they can use their bank credit to fund this. And that then they can use their excess industrial capacity for things like steel and cement and everything else they have excess capacity in, which is everything. 
to keep their economy growing. So yes, China does have problems, but, uh, and in fact, it's going to be a very important issue whether or not China's economy will bounce back from this virus or how quickly it will bounce back. There's a real risk that, you know, as you've probably seen, the factories just aren't producing in China. We can see that from the pollution levels the side satellites are providing. China's horrible pollution problem has just disappeared because the factories have all been shut down. Now, this China has enormous levels of debt across the board, and those co- companies are not going to be able to meet their debt service payments to the banks. And so the banks' non-performing loans, which are already very high if realistically accounted for, are going to become very much worse. So China's economy is in serious trouble, and you can't rule out the possibility that this virus coming on top of the trade war with the United States, which is not going to go away, it doesn't appear, is could be a very serious uh, blow, uh, very potentially uh, a blow from which China's economy just won't recover. It may not look the same going forward as it has for the last 30 years, but it's too early to know that. And so the United States had better begin adapting uh, and becoming much more aggressive in in its level of investment in in research and development if it intends to maintain control of its own destiny. In December, Senate Minority Leader Schumer made a speech in which he said he was going to propose that the United States government invest $100 billion in the industries of the future over the next five years. Specifically, he mentioned artificial intelligence. That was the topic he was addressing, but also in other areas, all the genetic research, biotech, neurosciences, robotics, all the, all the industries of the future. So you already have signs that the government is waking up to this threat that China poses to the United States in terms of China surpassing the United States technologically, economically, and militarily in the very near future if things don't change. The problem is $100 billion is simply not enough over five years. Even if the U.S. were to begin investing that much starting next year, China would still be investing more than the U.S., The United States is going to have to become much more aggressive than that in the level of how much it invests. In other words, this is is a a new Sputnik moment for the United States, but potentially even more dangerous than when the Soviet Union launched the first satellite in 1957. Well, then the United States responded by creating NASA and pumping a lot of government money into research and development. And eventually, we won the space race, and along the way, the government invested so much in rockets that the U.S. dominated in the Soviet Union in developing intercontinental ballistic missiles, eventually bankrupting the Soviet Union in their effort to match the U.S. in military spending. But this is at least a greater threat as the Soviets' lead in rocket technology was back then, 
if China, again, I say, if China develops artificial intelligence before the U.S. does, then it's game over. So they're going to have to respond accordingly. We, the Americans need to be aware of this, and they need to pressure their congressmen to begin spending much more, investing much more in research and development across all the industries of the future. And luckily, though, the United States can easily afford to do this because, as, as we've seen since the crisis of 2008, the government debt levels have gone up by roughly more than something like $13 trillion now since 2008. And the Fed has financed about a third of that through creating money. And we have no inflation at the CPI level. So the level of government debt to GDP now is something like 100, it's less than say 105%. And the interest rates on 10 year government bonds last night fell to 1%. So there's effectively no limit as to how much money the U.S. government can borrow and invest. And if need be, the Fed can help finance it by creating more money, QE5, 6 and 7, to finance it. And that's what they need to do. And that's what they need to do quickly. So big government spending um, like that would require significant political support, which um, especially the, the, the nature of the way politics is going right now, seems to be increasingly insular and um, not really wanting to necessarily invest um, in things like infrastructure, uh, et cetera. So what happens if we don't, what if we just, you know, what if we don't, what if we don't do the big uh, Sputnik spend? Better start learning Mandarin. (laughs) Because you would agree with me that it seems unlikely that that would happen. Um, no, I think the United States normally does do the right thing after it's exhausted all other possibilities, to paraphrase Churchill, I think. Uh, because Schumer did make this speech, and in this speech, I mean, he emphasized correctly that national security is not a partisan issue. This, this is very much a nonpartisan issue. Do, does the United States want to remain the uh, dominant or the preeminent global power? Or even more than that, does the United States want to, to retain its national security? Because if it doesn't make these sorts of investments, it's, it's not going to be secure anymore. That's going to come as a big shock to everyone in America who for generations has lived in a world where the United States was the global superpower, that that will be by long before the middle of this century, if current trends continue, China will be much more powerful than the United States across the board. And the consequences for the United States, uh, they just, we don't know what the consequences could be, but normally history tells us that that, that countries that have a significant technological lead over other countries don't treat their inferiors very kindly. So we are in an um, election year, and I'd like to get your thoughts on what ifs, all right? I mean, uh, we kind of have an idea of what happens, uh, you know, in the next Trump administration in terms of policies the way they are now. The Democrats right now, if if the 
if the candidate were chosen today, it would be Bernie Sanders. Uh, you could argue whether or not that's a realistic, uh, you know, um, that he has a realistic chance to win in a general election. But say he does. Does that does that change anything in your mind? Do presidents change anything? And, and you know, despite policies that might be considered a little bit more radical, the reality is it seems like there's a lot of guardrails around presidents in many situations uh, to to, you know, not change things too much. But I'm just curious from an, uh, you know, how do you look at this election? And, you know, what are you thinking about it? So, yes, you're right to point out the powers of the president are limited. Of course, Congress has to pass the laws. And unless Bernie Sanders were to come in with a very, with a, with a majority of the House and the Senate, then there would be a limit as to what he could achieve. However, if he were to win, and this would be a very clear signal that Americans are unhappy with the Democrats, clearly, just as the election of President Trump made it clear that the Americans were unhappy with Republicans. Let's face it, the Trump Republican Party has very little in common with the Republican Party that existed before, other than that it cut taxes. Uh, but the cutting the taxes, of course, made the budget deficit much larger, which the Republicans always claim that they were opposed to. Now, if Bernie were to win, this would show that equally there's a rep, been a, there would be a revolution on the, in, in, within the Democratic Party as well. I think that to a large extent, Hillary Clinton lost the election. The event that caused Hillary Clinton to lose the election to Donald Trump was when Bill Clinton signed NAFTA in the early 1990s essentially abandoning the core of the Democratic Party, the working people in the manufacturing industry who haven't seen a pay increase in decades as a result of this globalization that resulted from NAFTA and China being allowed into the WTO. So we very well see Bernie win, and that would tell us that, yes, uh, there has been a revolution, and that what that would imply is that the average Americans are going to demand that they get a bigger cut of the, sh of the pie one way or the other. That's in a sense what Donald Trump had offered. Um, and that's what Bernie is offering. And so were that to happen, if the taxes went up on the billionaires and then there were profits, uh, capital gains taxes put on stock prices and asset prices, that would hurt the asset markets. But you could also expect significantly higher government spending and higher levels of income one way or the other for the majority of the Americans, which would broaden the income base, which would allow more consumption. You know, the problem with giving tax cuts to very wealthy people is they don't really spend that much more. They've already got big yachts and jets. But if you give a little bit more money to the 50% of the people at the bottom of the income pile, they all spend it right away. So in that sense, that would be the, the economy would be more well-balanced in that respect. 
But again, uh, President Sanders would not be able to push through all of his objectives immediately, uh, certainly not if, unless he had a majority in Congress, which would probably be unlikely. But you could see things moving in that direction. I mean, things will probably, things tend to swing back and forth, and we've swung now to the point where the wealthy have become so wealthy that it's, it's very likely that things will swing back in the other direction. And that's probably would be healthy for the economy overall. That sort of swing would go on for decades, most likely, and then go too far eventually and then swing back again. So, uh, Richard, t- uh, tell us um, a little bit about MacroWatch. Okay, thank you. So, MacroWatch is, is my video newsletter. Every couple of weeks, I upload a new video. These videos are essentially me making a PowerPoint presentation on something important that I think is happening in the global economy and how that's likely to affect the stock market and property, currencies, commodities, and economies around the world. So in this, I focus on certain big themes. One of the main themes is that I believe that credit growth drives economic growth. That's been the case now going back to at least 1980. In 1980, total credit in the United States was 150% of GDP. By 2007, it had increased to 370% of GDP, and that transformed the world. So I focus a lot on looking at the future of credit growth. How much is it going to grow? And if it doesn't grow, then the economy is going to suffer. And in that case, the Fed has to respond by pushing up asset prices. So that's the second big theme of MacroWatch is looking at the amount of liquidity in the financial system and how the Fed and other central banks pump liquidity in the market to try to direct the economy by creating a wealth effect through pushing up asset prices. So MacroWatch focuses on things like credit growth, liquidity, and also government policy to see how they're going to impact the asset prices. So the most recent video, which I did over the weekend, was on the coronavirus and, and its effect on, on the economy and the markets in the near term and, and looking a little bit further out. So uh, thank you for mentioning that. I, if your listeners would like to learn more about MacroWatch, I would ask them to visit my website at richardduncaneconomics.com. That's richardduncaneconomics.com. And if they would like to subscribe to MacroWatch, I would like to offer them a 50% discount. If they click on the subscribe button, they'll be prompted and they should use the coupon code formula. If they type in formula in the, in the box when they're prompted, they can subscribe at a 50% discount. So I hope your listeners will take a look and at the very least sign up for my free blog there at MacroWatch. Absolutely. Richard, uh, a lot of uh, a lot of great information, and um, you know you become very highly recommended. I know uh, Robert Kiyosaki also follows your work very closely, so definitely check that out. It's uh, we'll also put the information there in the show notes, uh, and make sure you use that uh, that code and get the fifty percent off. Uh, Richard, thank you uh, so much for being in Wealth Formula Podcast. Well, thank you for inviting me. I, I look forward to the next time. We'll be right back. 
Welcome back to the show, everyone. One of the interesting things for me personally uh, right now is that, uh, you know, this is the first time uh, that we've had a significant global economic event where I actually had money to potentially lose. Uh, you see, in 2008, I had just finished my residency and didn't have any money to lose anyway. And that's good because I was also clueless in 2008 and had no idea what I was doing. Um, and I have to say, it's also nice to be in a position where I feel like I'm not blind to what's happening, right? Ignorance is not blit. Ignorance is not bliss when there's potentially blood in the streets and there's, you know, sick people uh, with coronavirus in the streets as well. Over the next several months, as we're going to get through this, right? And I'm hopeful that we can, um, you know, that I can help you gain some perspective uh, just from what I'm hearing and from what I'm thinking. Uh, these are, you know, make no mistake, these are unprecedented times uh, that are going to go down in history. And, um, you know, through my uh, perspective in finance and real estate, uh, but also as a physician, hopefully we can look at this and navigate it together. Uh, and by the way, if you want even more uh, of that and want to get involved with the community as we enter this phase, um, you might you know, think about joining Wealth Formula Network. Uh, Wealth Formula Network is our online community. Uh, it starts with a course, sure, but the real significant value that everybody talks about in this beyond the course, which is great, right? Because it's got Ken McElroy and, and Tom Wheelwright and all those guys. But the real value seems to be coming from the online community vis-a-vis -vis the online Facebook, uh, in the portal, uh, and then the bi-weekly Zoom uh, mastermind calls. Anyway, check that out at wealthformularoadmap.com. This is Buck Joffrey signing off. Thank you for listening to the Wealth Formula Podcast. Visit us on the web at wealthformula.com. The information contained in this podcast are opinions, not fact. As always, consult your own financial team before making any investment. See you next time. Buck Joffrey here from Safe You with Buck Joffrey. Aging might become reversible over the next 10 to 20 years. It's already being done in lab animals, so it's just a matter of time. Our challenge? To be healthy enough for when that time comes. As a former scientist and surgeon myself, my goal is to figure out how to do that and to share it with you. I wrote a book called Living Longer for Busy People that you can download for free at sapiopodcast.com. You'll be amazed at just how a few daily adjustments can add years of a healthy life for you. Again, download it for free, sapiopodcast.com.